We're in the book of Revelation. We'll be in chapter 1. We'll start with verse 9. But before we get there, in way of introduction, I kind of have to make a confession. Here it goes. I love the church. Like, I, I really do. Like, I, I really love the church. I love getting to the building early on a Sunday morning before it's depressingly hot. Getting things prepped around the facility, cleaned up, ready for you. I enjoy the cleaning. I, I like watching as people begin to fill the sanctuary with the bustle of activity and interaction. I, I love hearing God's people worship. There's nothing better. And, and the solemnness that fills this place when we collectively open and study God's word. I love felt boards, puppets, superbook videos, the crafts that we use to teach our children about Jesus. I love hearing the little ones sing songs about how much Jesus loves them or how Zacchaeus was a wee little man. I love watching as the kids emerge from their classrooms after the service to show off their psychedelic, multicolored, outside the lines, masterpiece portraits of Jesus or some other biblical scene to their parents. I love when I'm presented with the opportunity to pray for someone in need. I enjoy watching you guys pray for one another. I love to see people commune with Jesus by coming to the Lord's table or when they take that all-important step in their walk with Jesus by being baptized. I love seeing people use their God-given talent and the service of Jesus. I'm so encouraged to see people come to church, not just to be served, but to serve, to serve others. I love hearing the exciting stories of missionaries, the work that is happening in the name of Jesus in foreign lands. I love seeing people build and enjoy relationships. Over a diversity of age and race and gender and general interest, I enjoy potlucks and picnics, the opportunity to gather together with a band of my brothers to shoot guns on a Saturday morning or draft our fantasy football teams. I so appreciate the opportunities my wife has to get out of the house full of boys and spend time with her sisters. I love Vacation Bible School. I love community outreaches, youth group, youth events, summer retreats and conferences. Beyond all of these things, I would say what I love most is watching lives being transformed by the gospel. Seeing broken lives or broken marriages made whole. Watching as people find satisfaction, fulfillment by digging into God's word or being empowered and refreshed through a fresh filling of his spirit. I love witnessing what can only be described as the aha moment when the light bulb finally goes off and a person understands grace. There's nothing better than seeing a person finally freed from the burden of self-imposed expectations. I love introducing people to Jesus. For those of you who don't know my story, church life is honestly all I've ever known. 
Some 35 years ago, in September of 1980, my dad started a Calvary Chapel in Stone Mountain, downtown Stone Mountain, when there were, at the time, maybe a handful of Calvary Chapel churches this side of the Rocky Mountains. His heart was to bring to the Bible Belt a Bible-driven church that taught the Scriptures expositionally, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, to be a part of a church that cut out all of the traditional religiosity by allowing people to just come and meet Jesus just as they were. Three years later, May 29, 1983, I not only became an Adams, but an honorary member of Calvary Chapel. Church, as a pastor's kid, has always been an essential staple in my life. In many ways, church, church life, was so foundational, so central, that most of all of my childhood memories, the fond ones and the not-so-fond ones, are connected to a little building on 2nd Street or their current property off of McDaniels Bridge Road. Honestly, when a church is operating as she was designed to operate, I would challenge you to find anything better in all the world. It's a sweet thing. It's an awesome thing. It's an amazing thing. It's why really after Bible college, I decided to dedicate my life to her service because Jesus had called me to. In his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, Paul Tripp wrote this. The church is not a theological classroom. It is a conversion, confession, repentance, reconciliation, forgiveness, and sanctification center where flawed people place their faith in Christ, gather to know and love him better, and learn to love others as he designed. And yet, as many of us know all too well, the sad reality is that the church often falls short of her mandate to represent Jesus unto the world. A recent study found that 87%, it's a large number, of millennials view Christians as being judgmental. 85% of them see Christians as hypocritical. What a sad indictment of the church. Beyond our own personal experiences, we should be honest that church history is not all glorious. It presents many dark, sad, depressing moments. The Inquisitions, Crusades, indulgences, heresies, institutionalism, intolerances, the Salem witch trials, dissenters being burned at the stake, democide, slavery, persecution of gays, restriction of contraception, abortion bombing, sexual abuse by Catholic priests. This list could go on. Because of my 32 years growing up in the church, I've witnessed firsthand how nasty and disappointing church life can be when people lose sight of the calling and design of God for the church. I don't think I'm going to go out on a limb by saying that maybe many of you at some point in time have also experienced pain, maybe even disillusionment caused by the church. Not to get overly personal, but just to share my own experiences. I've seen my mom cry herself to sleep over the hurtful things people in the church said about my dad, her role in the ministry, or even her children. 
I've seen how vile, unfair, and downright mean people can be to the pastor's family, or for that matter, to one another. I've seen both of my parents struggle with the loneliness of the ministry and the difficult task of developing real friendships. I've seen the emotional effects of betrayal in church. When your intentions are impugned, your calling is questioned, or your leadership challenged, not by those that don't like you, but by those who claim to be trusted confidants. I've witnessed in my 32 years firsthand the disappointment that occurs when an elder or a fellow pastor falls into a sin that discredits them from the ministry. It hurts. I've seen and experienced the pain when someone you've invested so much of your time and energy and heart into unexpectedly decides you're no longer good enough, choosing instead to go to another church. And this doesn't include the friends I've had who have fallen from the faith or stepped back into a lifestyle of sin. This doesn't include the gossip and the slander I've seen ruin people's reputations unfairly or the legalistic tendencies that have caused some genuine Christ followers to question the essence of what the gospel really means. You see, while church life can provide the world a taste of heaven, it's also a reality she can just as easily sour people to the things of God when she falls short of her calling. Barna Group research firm found that 37% of unchurched Americans cite, quote, painful experiences with the church or people within the church as the reason they no longer attend. And it's this pressing reality why I cannot stress enough why it's so important we, as a church, operate as Jesus designed. For if we don't, people will get hurt, our witness will be tarnished, and souls potentially lost in the process. Which leads me to a question we should all consider this morning. What do we do when the church fails to live up to her mandate? What do you do? What do you do when you get hurt? Do you give up on the church, criticize her, or demean her? Or do you seek to be part of making her better, part of the solution, part of making her whole? In an article posted in Relevant Magazine titled The Wrong Way to Criticize the Church, Jared Lafette wrote this, as long as the church is made up of sinners in need of grace, we'll have issues. And we need mature, wise, careful voices to speak to our issues. But there is a difference between looking for ways to make the church better and looking for things to complain about. Mature, humble criticism is selfless and redemptive. Immature criticism is usually self-focused and doesn't generally lead to change. Humble criticism means noticing a problem and articulating solutions instead of looking for problems and wallowing in anger. It means being tempor temporarily disappointed without being permanently disillusioned. He says, when I feel tempted towards being jaded, I have to catch myself. I can offer criticism, but I can't allow myself to be constantly jaded 
by the evangelical subculture because I'm part of it. As much as I feel tempted to criticize it, I am it. I've sinned and broken promises and lived in inconsistent ways, just like the Christians I can be cynical about. What right would I have to be jaded and leave the church over one issue when I fail in another? Please understand a component of Christianity in this particular topic in general that many people fail to see, many overlook. Loving the church is not an option. It's not optional. Honestly, it's simply a truth that if you genuinely love Jesus, then you're going to love the things that he loves. And you know, he loves the church. Warts and all. He calls her his bride. Which is important. For while you can be upset with the church, and while you can even find yourself frustrated by the church, if you make a decision to love her, then you will refuse to give up. Why? For 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love suffers long. Love bears all things and endures all things. It's why in 1 Peter 4 verse 8, we're told to quote, above all things, the most important thing, have fervent love for one another. That's us, the church. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Friends, keep in mind, a quote, go it alone, I don't need the church, I prefer my faith to be private form of Christianity doesn't exist and is not an option for a Christ follower. For better or for worse, because you are the church, you're either a continuation of the problem or you're part of the solution, but there is no escaping personal responsibility for how the church operates. Part of the solution or part of the problem? I'm encouraged. I really am. I take great encouragement knowing that Jesus seemed to understand that his church would struggle to operate as he intended. It's not as though Jesus had any disillusionment about some of the failures that would occur within the church. I mean, it's true. Jesus said he would build his church so that the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, but it's also a reality he handed over the day-to-day -day operations to a group of sinners, a group of morons, us. You see, in that dynamic, problems, problems are unavoidable. It's why most of the New Testament is geared towards helping the church deal with problems. You know, I find, because of all of this, the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, so important. I really do. Knowing that the church, his church, his bride, would go through struggles. And a book most of us consider to be a book full of end times prophecy. Jesus first, before he gets into any of that, he goes out of his way to remind the church first of her purpose in the world, then he provides the church a fresh and new revelation of himself, which includes his present activity, before finally speaking to the church about several issues that can easily limit her effectiveness. 
this morning, if we, Calvary 316, genuinely want to be the type of church that is a blessing to the world around us and not a curse, that if we want to be a church full of solutions and not more problems, a place people can get a taste of heaven and not sour to the things of God, we need to always keep our purpose as a church in focus, our eyes fixed on the resurrected Jesus, and our ears and heart always open to receive the words he has for his church. Revelation chapter 1, in way of introduction, we're going to start with verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion, and the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now let me set the scene for you with really two questions. First, why is John on the island of Patmos? John, the apostle John, the youngest of the apostles, is living through a period of immense church persecution. We'll get into these things as we begin to approach the letters because they'll address them. Needless to say, John is exiled on this island, kind of an Alcatraz of the first century, a rock fortress, because he's a Christian. He's loved Jesus. He's committed no crime. He's an old man who's given his life to the service of the Lord and as a result is experiencing his own tribulation. So he's been exiled to this island. He's there. He's about 90 years old, church history tells us. This is the late part of the first century. And on the Lord's day, that being Sunday, John takes an opportunity to spend some time with Jesus. Lo and behold, as this is taking place, what happens? Jesus appears. He hears this voice and he turns and there's Jesus in glory, introducing himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. But Jesus gives John very specific instructions. Jesus tells him to write in a book the things he's about to see and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. We have a list of these churches also provided. In verse 19, the instructions of what he's to write are kind of specified further. Jesus tells John, not just write the things you've seen, but write the things which you have seen, which is in a past tense, chapter one. The things which are, which is more of a present tense, we'll see to be chapters two and three. And the things which will, quote, take place after this, which we'll come to see is chapter four through 22, that same phrase being used to transition between chapter three and chapter four. Verse 12, I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the son of man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band his head and hair 
were white, like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell down at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, the things which will take place after this, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Before specifically addressing each of these seven churches with a series of letters that follow this passage, the very first thing, and if you're a note taker, jot it down, that Jesus does in addressing his church is that he subtly reminds the church of her purpose in the world. You know, that's the very first thing that catches John's attention as he turns. He hears a voice, he turns, but the first thing he sees is not the one speaking, but something else. We're told he turned to see the voice, and what did he see? Seven golden lampstands, verse 12. Now let me place these lampstands in a bit of an Old Testament context. In the inner chambers of both the tabernacle and later the temple, light was provided by what was known as the golden menorah. Now the details for the creation of the menorah as well as the maintenance of the menorah by the high priest. You can read about on your own in Exodus chapter 25, verses 31 through 40. And as with all of the elements of the tabernacle and the temple, everything presented symbolism. Everything had a symbolic nature and the menorah was not an exception. The golden menorah served to illustrate how the nation of Israel had been called and commissioned to be God's light of revelation unto the world. Now, what's interesting is that when John turns, what he sees, what catches his focus is not actually the menorah. He would have known what the menorah looked like. If it had been the menorah, he would have referenced it as such. What he sees is not the menorah, which had one uh, one rod with six branches, seven in totality. What he sees is not one, basically, lampstand with seven uh, lamps, but instead seven individual golden lampstands. Now, in order to avoid any type of confusion as to what these seven golden lampstands represented, in the Old Testament, the menorah represented Israel to shine a light into the world. But in this context, these seven lampstands, Jesus tells us very specifically in verse 20, are these seven churches. While each lampstand served the same purpose of providing light, 
Unlike the menorah, the lamps themselves were all independent, separated from one another. One commentary, uh, commentator explains the difference. He says, in the Old Testament, God had but one church, that being the Jews, the nation of Israel. But now in the New Testament, there's many among the Gentiles. Now, the symbolism of the lampstand is significant. Don't overlook it. Because Jesus, in presenting these seven lampstands, is reminding these seven churches that their foundational purpose, the purpose for why they existed, was to be a vessel whereby the flame fueled by the oil of the Spirit would shine his light unto a dark world. This idea of the lampstand as being a picture of the church. We're just a vessel. A vessel that needs oil, needs fuel. There's no flame in and of ourselves. The light doesn't originate within us. It originates in the light of the world, that being Jesus. It's fueled by his spirit. It's a beautiful picture of the church. We shine a light that's not our own. We fan a flame that's not our own. It's a flame that starts with Jesus. It's manifested through the Spirit. But when it's all said and done, we're to be His light, His witness, a beacon on a hillside to the world of revelation, the light of God. British theologian Adam Clark made this important observation. He said, a lamp is not light in itself. It is only the instrument of displaying light. And it must receive both oil and fire before it can dispense any. So no church has in itself either grace or glory. It must receive all from Christ its head, else it can dispense neither light nor life. Now following this reminder to the seven churches as to their purpose in the world, to be a light, to be a lampstand, a vessel, a light bearer, Jesus then provides a fresh revelation of himself, which includes his present activity. Now notice what immediately diverts John's attention away from these lampstands. He hears the voice, he turns, he sees the lampstand, but and then verse 13, he says, in the midst of these seven lampstands, one, there was one, like the son of man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, girded about the chest with a golden band. Now check out, the rest of John's continued description of the one in which he's seeing. We'll run through them quickly. He says his hair, his head were like white as wool, as white as snow, which speaks of his wisdom. White being his purity. His eyes were like a flame of fire, this penetrating understandment, understanding and judgment that he sees all, he judges all, nothing exists beyond his awareness. His feet were told like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, which speaks to his stability, the feet, his strength. But it's a stability that's earned because it's been refined. In that day, brass was the strongest known metal. His voice as the sound of many waters, which speaks to the power and the majesty of his words, the weight. We're told he had in his right hand seven stars. Now that's admittedly a little confusing. Thank goodness in verse 20, Jesus tells John that the seven stars 
are the angels of the seven churches. Thank you, Jesus. That really cleared it all up. Now, while it's true, this could be a reference of an actual angel. Thus, that each of these seven churches had, to some degree, a guardian angel. I don't think that's the case. The word simply means messenger. He held in his hand these messengers. Most scholars see them as the pastor of these particular churches. Now, note, the right hand, not the left, but the right, it represented authority. In a sense, Jesus holds the pastors, the leadership of these churches in his hand, the hand of authority, which means something. You see, not only is the leadership placed into a position of authority, but they're also being held to account by that same authority. They're in his right hand. We're also told out of his mouth when a sharp two-edged sword. In the Greek, this this phrase, a sharp two-edged sword, a double-edged sword, didn't mean it was a little dagger. It didn't mean it was a defensive weapon. As a matter of fact, the way that it's all structured and set up is that the sword being referred to was only used for combat. It was a gigantic sword. It was an offensive weapon. His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. This speaks of the glory, the majesty, the awesomeness of the transformed, resurrected Jesus. We've seen this before, as a matter of fact, in two instances. If you recall, when Jesus was transfigured, Peter, James, and John, who witnessed the event, as Jesus stood with Elijah and Moses, they saw his face shine like the sun. Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus, Jesus intervened, revealed himself, and it was so blinding that he was blind for three days. Charles Spurgeon He spoke to this point, maybe like only he can. He says, what do you see in Christ's right hand? Seven stars. Yet how insignificant they appear when you get a sight of his face. Who can see seven stars, or for that matter, 70,000 stars when the sun shineth in its strength? How sweet it is when the Lord himself is so present in a congregation that the preacher, whomever he may be, is altogether forgotten. I'd say amen to that. Beyond these things, Jesus introduces himself to John and to these seven churches using some very important phrases. Now, we're not gonna be able to get into them all, but this is more of a reference. He, he introduces himself, the Alpha, the Omega, the, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, the entirety of the word, the entirety of the revelation of God. He is the first and the last, which speaks to his timelessness, his immutability. He introduces himself as he who lives, was dead and behold, is alive forevermore. Speaking of his resurrection, he also mentions that he alone holds in his hands the keys of Hades and of death. You can't help but notice, that's kind of why I bring it up, how different this revelation of Jesus or unveiling of Jesus is from the one we have in the gospels, right? Like this Jesus here in Revelation 1 is kind of a radically different persona than the other Jesus. His first presentation. You know, in Isaiah 53 verse 2, we're told of his earthly incarnation that, quote, he had no form 
or comeliness. And when we see him, there was no beauty that we should desire him. A physical description of the earthly Jesus and the incarnation is that there was nothing physically about him that was appealing or noteworthy that drawed your attention to him. And yet, everything about this description of the resurrected Christ is not only impressive, but it's radical, isn't it? I mean, you cannot say of this description of Jesus that he had no form or comeliness. You desire this Jesus. You see, what we have being described to John, what he's describing to us, it's a Jesus who is awesome and righteous, majestic and powerful, and to some degree, unapproachable. Like consider that John, and it's not an accident that it's John. John were defined, was defined as the apostle in whom Jesus loved. The youngest Jesus and John had a connection. Think of it, John was Jesus's BFF. They were best friends forever. Like they were together, they were tight. I mean, they loved each other. There was a genuine connection, a genuine friendship. No doubt when John heard a voice, he recognized it. No doubt there was an excitement. 70 years had passed since he had last heard that voice. And when he turned, no doubt, one is, what's up, bro? I'm gonna give you a hug. It's been a while. No, that was not the reaction. He turned, he saw, there's this description. And what happens? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. Like, I, I think that moment when we open our eyes to heaven, it's gonna be a bit different than what most of us kind of assume. You know, we open our eyes and there's marshmallow puffs of clouds and, and a milk chocolate river. I don't know, this just came off, off the top of my head. I, that was not my notes. That it's like fuzzies and happy feelings and like, and then we see Jesus and we're like, oh, Jesus. No. Like if we go off of this, when we open our eyes to eternity and we see Jesus, it will be so overwhelming that our physical posture will represent our spiritual one, that we are in total surrender to that man. David Guzik observes why this description of Jesus is so important for the church. He writes, quote, in our modern pictures of Jesus, we like to think of him as he was, not Jesus as he is. I can't overemphasize how important it is that we as a church not only lose sight of our, of our, our purpose, that we keep that in mind. We're to be a light unto the world. That's why we're here. That's why we exist. But we should never, ever, ever lose sight of the one we're betrothed to, the Jesus we follow and the Jesus we serve. I mean, Jesus might have been meek and mild, but now he is strong and mighty. He might've presented himself at one time as a suffering servant, but now he is undeniably the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Yes, he was the Lamb of God, sacrificed for our sins, but he has now become the Lion of the tribe of Judah. 
That's the Jesus that we serve. That's our King. He's our Lord. He's who we bow our allegiance to and raise our hands in worship of. Alexander the Great once said of the critical importance of leadership, I am not afraid of an army of lions led by a sheep. I am afraid of an army of sheep led by a lion. Notice from this vision where Jesus is. Not just who he is, but but where he is. John says that he sees Jesus in the midst of the seven lampstands. And this is significant. Even when a church proves to be dysfunctional, as many of these seven churches were, because of his love for his church, he's still in the midst of her. He has not given up. He has not bailed. On a side note, don't miss another important implication we can draw from this. You know, if you want to find Jesus, I just want to find Jesus. I want to encounter Jesus. I want to connect with Jesus. You know the best place to look for him? Where he is. And where is he? In the midst of his church. If you want to find Jesus, go hang out with his church because that's where he's hanging out. Also, notice what he's doing. Based upon John's initial description of Jesus as one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment to the feet, girded about the chest with a golden band, who is in the midst of these seven lampstands, all of the imagery here, we can assume that Jesus' activity and his resurrected form, his glorious form, is acting as a high priest, tending to lamps that can't tend themselves. You know, 11 times in the book of Hebrews, Jesus is referred to in his resurrected role as our high priest, which is significant. For not only is Jesus this morning in our midst, but he's tending to the lamps so that they can, t- so that they can continue to function as he designed them to and shine brightly. Like, understand the importance here. Where to be the lamps, vessels, light bearers, Jesus in this awesome form is in the midst of the lampstands ensuring they function as they're supposed to. As high priest, it's not only his right to evaluate each lamp, but he must act when necessary. The high priest every evening and every morning in the temple, in the tabernacle, it was his job to care for the menorah. He would check for the menorah. He would refuel the menorah. He would trim the wicks. If the menorah or a segment of it was broken, he would replace it altogether. You understand, before Jesus said anything to these seven churches, which he's now going to do through a series of seven letters, he found it important to first remind them of their purpose and to make sure they understood who it was and what his role is, the one doing the speaking. Not only does Jesus have the authority to evaluate, criticize, and address issues within his church, issues of concern to him, but out of his love for each of these seven churches and his role as high priest, it was his prerogative to do so. In order for us to unpack the fullness of what Jesus will now say, what will be communicated through these seven letters, I want you to note and this is kind of more of an introduction to the letters themselves, how each letter should be viewed. I think it's important. All three views help us unpack 
the, the totality of the message. First, there is a backdrop. Obviously, Jesus is writing to a local church located in each of these seven cities. Not only is the entire book itself addressed to these seven cities, churches in these seven cities, we've already seen that, each letter will be addressed to the angel of the church of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, run down the list. In addition to writing to an actual church in the first century in those cities, you'll note that specific issues and people will be referenced. So undoubtedly, as far as the backdrop is concerned, each of these letters was addressed to an actual local church. Secondly, though, there is a context, a greater context, that Jesus is writing not just to seven local churches, but to the universal church, which each, with each of these seven letters being specifically applied to a different period and movement within church history. Let me explain that for a moment. When it comes to biblical numerology, how numbers have meaning, it's not an accident that Jesus wrote to seven churches. It's very specific. All throughout scripture, the number seven always signified completion. Seven days make up a complete week. This would also explain why Jesus wrote to seven and not to all the churches. Do you know there are 12 churches in Asia Minor surrounding Ephesus? It's kind of odd that he would just pick seven if there wasn't a purpose and not write to all 12. Aside from that, why not write to more significant churches? Like Thessalonica or Corinth, Philippi. Beyond this, the structuring of verse 19 which provides a very specific outline for the revelation itself, seemingly supports this position that in addressing seven local churches, Jesus was prophetically addressing his church as a whole. Write the things which you have seen, the past tense, chapter one, the things which are. Seven churches representing the church as a whole. And then chapter four, when it's the things which will come after this being the church, things definitely get futuristic in nature. We'll kind of unpack this a little bit more as we apply this, this context to each of the letters. Thirdly, the third way we should view them is kind of in the application of them. In addition to writing to a local church, the universal church, Jesus, through these letters, is writing to our church. And more specifically, he's writing to each of us individually who make up the church. And he uses these seven letters to highlight various pitfalls that you and I need to caution against if we want to be the church that Jesus has called us to be. As we get into our study, you'll notice that each of these letters closes with the same admonition. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Though each letter is addressed to a local church, you'll note that the application is intended to the churches, plural. Not just to the church, but to the churches, in addition to that, obviously he's writing to us because the church doesn't have an ear, but we do. As we begin to work our way through these letters, you're gonna notice that they all kind of follow a general pattern. They begin addressing to the angel of the church of, you'll find that they close with that admonition, he who has an ear. Between the two, these bookends, each letter, Jesus will commend what he finds commendable. It's always nice, right? Doing good. I mean, the exception is Sardis and Laodicea, which had nothing good. 
He'll also condemn what he finds condemnable. Not so good, right? The exception, Smyrna and Philadelphia. He'll also, in every letter, emphasize a relevant aspect of his person before providing necessary instructions and warnings. Our purpose in looking at these seven letters, the reason we're going to spend the next seven weeks looking at each of them is for the purpose of internalizing with the Holy Spirit what Jesus wants to say to us. Like, I hope that you love the church. I hope you love the people that Jesus loves. And I know that can be tough. And if you don't, because you've been burned in the past, it's my honest prayer that your time at Calvary 316 will renew that love, that our church will provide everyone who walks through that front door a taste of what heaven will be like. But the only way that can happen is if we function as a church in the way that Jesus designed us to be. In conclusion, sounds weird, a conclusion to an introduction. May we, both individually and corporately, keep our purpose and focus. Fix our eyes on a resurrected Jesus. But over the next few weeks, may we have open ears to hear and to apply the things that Jesus wants to share with our church. Letters from Jesus for us. That's awesome. May we have a willingness to place ourselves under their authority and really begin to examine our own hearts. The church can be a great thing. It can be a dangerous thing. It all comes back to us following Jesus and submitting ourselves to that blueprint.